This is Pete Alonzo of the New York Mets, and you're listening to BT Talks Baseball on the 365 Sportscast Network. Take it away, Brett. Live from the launch pad in Huntington, New York, it's BT Talks Baseball, presented by 915 Construction and Design, home of Handyman Express. Now, here's Brett Topel. Wow, and welcome back inside BT Talks Baseball. What a way to start. What an introduction. Thank you so much to Pete Alonzo and the great Colin Cosell for that great introduction. Colin, the voice of City Field, and now I'm proud to say the voice of BT Talks Baseball, at least the intro voice of BT Talks Baseball. I'm so proud and so happy to be here right here on the 365 Sportscast Network. I open by saying welcome back inside BT Talks Baseball. Because as many of you know, the show originally started as a small little podcast from the ba- from my basement back in March. And to have it go to this, a live show every Sunday night on 365 Sportscast Network is just so amazing. I'm so honored to be here. And I'm going to be with you every Sunday night from 7 to 8 p.m. I even have a producer now. Mike Caprice is with me. Uh, I keep Mike off of the, the camera if you're watching uh, the video stream because, well, I told Mike it was because of social distancing. It's really because... Uh, because Mike is a little better looking than me, and I can't, I can't risk that. Mike, how are you? I'm doing great. You don't need to worry about uh, me being on the camera. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you don't need to worry about being on the camera. Um, I'm so proud also, uh, as you had heard Kyle Cosell uh, mention, that I have a presenting sponsor for BT Talks Baseball, and I want to thank Jamie and John at 915 Construction and Design, home of Handyman Express, for having their faith and confidence in me. I'm so proud to have them as my presenting sponsor. All right, I think enough with the thank yous. Uh, it's time to talk some baseball. We have a great show for you tonight. Mets great John Matlack will join me, as will author John Shea and travel expert Glenn Hausman. But first, let's talk a little bit about baseball, a little baseball and, and talk about where we are in the grand scheme of things, the free agency. Uh, not a lot going on, actually. Uh, a couple of trades this week. You know, of course, you Darvish and, and Blake Snell uh, acquired by San Diego. Uh, Darvish was shocked. That he uh, ended up in San Diego and, and Blake Snell was stoked. So two very different reactions to that. But, uh, you know, the Padres, as always, trying to gear up uh, and load up during the offseason. It has not really worked out for them in, in the past. And we'll see if that works for that, out for them now. Uh, also, the Washington Nationals get a little stronger in the National League East uh, by acquiring Josh Bell. Um, and we'll see what that does for them. They needed, they needed another power bat. And certainly Josh Bell with what he's done with the Pirates in the past, is going to be that power bat that the Nationals uh, solely covet. Uh, the Mets did sign uh, James McCann, a catcher, a big up, big upgrade for them. But I think everybody is waiting for the Mets to make their moves, right? Whether it's Trevor Bauer, whether it's George Springer, whether it's a trade for somebody like Francisco Lindor, the Mets and, and new owner Steve Cohen ha- have set out this, this mantra, if you will, that they are open for business. So far, they, are not, they have not done much, obviously, other than signing James McCann. We will wait and see what the Mets' next move is. Uh, but Mets fans are anxiously awaiting. They're getting a little, Mike, they're getting a little uh, impatient, actually, aren't they? The Mets fans, <laughs> with the uh, Steve Cohen coming in, everyone, everyone wants everyone to make big moves now. Yeah, ab- absolutely, and, and I think the Mets are going to make some big moves. I, I really do think that they, they're going to be all in. Um, 
sources say that George Springer seems to be a, a good a good bet to be playing uh, center field at City Field this year, and uh, I think he would be a great fit at the top of the batting order. Um, and I think Trevor Bauer also is a possibility. I mean, think of a, a rotation with Degrom and Bauer and Syndergaard and Stroman. Uh, wishful thinking right now, but uh, Met fans are hoping. And for the Yankees, I think project number one is DJ LeMahieu. I don't think that they can afford not to re-sign LeMahieu. I think he's somebody that uh, needs to to be re-signed. He's so versatile. He's probably, the, you know, if not the best player on that team. He certainly was the best uh, situational player on that team last year. He could play so many different positions. And, you know, they may be moving Gleyber Torres back to second base. We're going to have to wait and see about that. But the fact of the matter is that the Yankees, while they could certainly, certainly use uh, starting pitching because they're not very deep there, uh, I think signing DJ LeMahieu is a very, very important uh, move for them. And I don't think it's a move that Brian Cashman, quite frankly, can afford not to make because I think that Yankee fans very quickly have fallen in love with DJ LeMahieu, for, for lack of a better way to say it. And um, he is the type of player that's easy to fall in love with. Uh, he, he plays hard every day. Um, you know, he reminds me, uh, and I, I hopefully this is not going to anger uh, fans, but, you know, he reminds me of a more experienced, more seasons Jeff McNeil. I think the Mets, you know, are, certainly can only hope that Jeff McNeil, you know, grows into uh, that type of a player. But uh, right now it's DJ LeMahieu uh, for the Yankees. And I'm sorry, Mike Capisi, uh, he's, 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 all of his good looks, he's distracting me with, uh, with, with messages. But uh, I think Yankees project number one, signing number one has to be LeMahieu, and then Cashman has to go out and look for some starting pitching. And the rest of the National League East and American League East, if we're talking about Mets and Yankees, need to continue to build. The Braves certainly have a strong young team. The Nationals, as I said, got stronger with Bell. And the Phillies... Not so much, but, you know, they do have Bryce Harper and they have some key players. They have some key pitchers. So I think that the National League East should be very strong. The American League East, the Yankees, of course, always have Tampa to deal with, although Tampa probably not going to be a, a player this year. They, they got rid of Snell. They, they always seem to be retooling. And I think that they've retooled, uh, you know, once too often. I think that that, uh, I think that team is, is not going to be very competitive. Toronto is certainly uh, trying to make some moves, and they are in on the George Springer talk as well. So we will see. We will see what happens. I, my, my prediction is over the next couple of days, maybe right into you know Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, we're going to start to see some action, some free agent signings. And I think once the first move is made, I think the dominoes will fall. And I think that the Met fans can relax and know that Steve Cohen not only is a billionaire owner, a multi-multi-billionaire owner, but he's a Met fan, he, he's, he's here for the long term, and he's ready to build uh, a winning team. And I think Mets fans can ask for nothing more than that. All right, I think it's time to get to our first guest. Uh, I'm so excited to have this man back on the program. He's been with me in the past. He's the 1972 Rookie of the Year. He's a three-time All-Star. He was the co-most valuable player in the 1975 All-Star Game. And I'm so honored to have him back back with me here on BT Talks Baseball. It's John Matlack. John, Happy New Year, and welcome back to BT Talks Baseball. Happy New Year to you too, Brett. Good to be back. John, it's always so great to talk baseball with you, but I wanted to start tonight by talking. You and I have not spoken in in a couple of months, and certainly not since the, the passing of your longtime friend and teammate, Tom Seaver. And I was wondering if you could talk about the impact Tom on, had on your career early in your career. 
Well, that would probably eat up the rest of your program. He had a a whale of an impact. They actually put my locker between his and and Jerry Kuzman's when I made the club, and it couldn't have been in a better spot. Um, Jerry helped me a lot from the lefty-on-lefty kind of thing because we both threw from the same side. And and Tommy was more uh, of an assistant in terms of the mental approach to the game. Excuse me. uh, Physical conditioning, eating habits, sleeping habits, things that will keep you prepared for every fifth day. And he was a, uh, just a, a great asset, no doubt about it. Certainly, you know, he's the franchise. He is the, the one person, you know, a lot of people, you know, said if the Mets have a Mount Rushmore, then it might be four different faces of Tom Seaver. And uh, he, the impact he had on the franchise is certainly uh, well-documented. Uh, you, you have told me a couple of funny stories about Tom, and, and I wanted to, I was hoping we could retell some of those today. And one of them was uh, the, the day you made your Major League debut against the Cincinnati Reds. You, you pitched very well, and I believe you left the game with a lead after pitching seven strong innings. And and then, uh, you know, the franchise kind of got in the way. Can you can you talk talk more about that? Well, it, it was that time of year. It was close to the All Star break, and and Tom had had his last start. wasn't going to get another one before the All Star game, so they had him in the bullpen. And and I'm in the shower, uh, out of the game after seven innings uh, with a lead three to two, I believe it was. Um, I guess the lead was secured when they pinch hit for me in the seventh and um, or the top of the eighth, maybe and drove in to go ahead runs. But at any rate, Tom comes into the ball game and, and he's going to secure the save, hopefully. And, and I figure I've got no better caddy that day. But lo and behold, a guy who hit a two-run home run off of me earlier in the day, uh, Tony Perez, managed to hit one off of Tom as well, a three-runner this time, and we ended up losing the game 5-3. I believe, I looked this up, I believe that was Tom's only blown save of his career. So I'm sure you... Uh, we're more than happy to be on the receiving end of that, right? <laughs> well, I, I was just happy to have survived my first outing in the major leagues. <laughs> well, you, you certainly did more than survive. You you went on to win the Rookie of the Year that year, and of course in '73 uh, were were part of uh, uh, the, the, the Mets team and were a big part of it. That won the National League pennant. The other funny story I wanted to, to bring up was the 1975 All-Star Game, which was such a great night for you. Uh, you pitched very well. You, you've told me in the past you just happened to get in the game at the right time, but the fact is you you pitched very well and you ended up being the co-most valuable player uh, in the game, sharing it with Bill Madlock, uh, Matlack and Madlock, uh, uh, the, the MVP, uh, the connection in 1975. But it almost wasn't to be at all because thanks to a Tom Seaver pitch to call Yastrzemski, you almost had your life in danger, Correct. Yeah, it was a strange situation. I was warming up to come into the ball game. They'd already told me I was going to be pitching the next inning. And uh, <clears throat> Tom's pitching to Ustremski, and, and the bullpen there at County Stadium is out in right center field under the, the scoreboard, sort of. And um, I'm warming up, and the guys in the bullpen were paying attention to the game, fortunately, and they yelled, look out, and I sort of sidestepped, and the ball landed very near me in the bullpen. It was a home run that Yaskremski had just hit off of Tommy, and uh, he almost got two two birds with one or two Mets with one stone because hit the home run off of Tom and almost hit me in the bullpen when when he was doing it. <laughs> well, that certainly would not that that would have been a, a not as a happy ending as the one that ended up happening. No, for sure. I'm I'm much more pleased with the one that uh, came about. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, John, you were you were such an underrated pitcher for the Mets, and I think. You know, people can almost understand that, and maybe you can as well. You had you were pitching in rotation with Tom Seaver and Jerry Kuzman, but 
as we said earlier, you certainly had your recognition in 72, you were the rookie of the year, 73, you were a pennant winner and, and, you know, by all accounts really, you know, should have been a world series champion that year, had not a few things gone the wrong way in the 73 world series against Oakland, but a season for you that really doesn't get talked about that often is 1974. You won 13 games, you had a 2.41 ERA, and you led the majors with what is now an astounding seven shutouts. I mean, seven shutouts. Teams don't have anywhere close to seven shutouts this year. Um, but I believe that that year has gotten even more respectable for you because of some of the newfangled stats, and I don't even know if you pay attention to this, but you led the league that year in war wins above replacement, and in situational, situational wins saved, both of which stats that didn't exist at the time, but you led the National League. And it was also the first of three straight seasons that you made the National League All-Star team. Can, can you talk a little bit about 1974 and what that meant to you? Well, 74 was, I guess, when I sort of found my stride and, and uh, confidence in what I was doing. Um, I didn't dwell a lot on the, the wins and losses. Uh, and fortunately the front office did when it came time for contracts, but I looked at my job as keeping the team in the game, um, meaning within a run up or down or tie, uh, as long as they were going to let me stay out there. And, and that was my goal. I was trying to do the best that I could do to pitch as deep into a ball game as possible and keep us in a position to be able to win. Um, so that's, if I had accomplished that that day, win, lose, or draw, then I came away feeling like I had done my job. And you know, I think it happened eight times uh, that season where I gave up less than three runs and got beat by a run. Um, it, it, you, know, you look back on it and you shake your head and say, geez, if this bounce had gone this way or if this guy had just gotten a base hit in this situation – and there's a whole lot more wins that could have happened. They just didn't. And at the time, I didn't particularly worry about it. Um, it's just the way the ball bounced. Well, the, the ball certainly bounced uh, your way in uh, very, all the best ways that, that season. Um, you know, following your career, you spent so many years as a, as a coach, a pitching coach, a minor league instructor. How much do you watch today's game? And, and who are the players or pitchers in particular that you enjoy watching? I don't watch too much baseball, but I do follow it um, on the computer the following day, tracking guys that I may have been associated with or coached in the past. And unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of them still playing because I've been out of the game now 10, 12 years. Um, well, about 10 maybe. Anyway, uh, the game has changed. Um, the approach is different. The training is different. Uh, the philosophy of starting pitchers and then the specialty pitchers that follow them, um, totally different. And I don't know how you even compare it to what I experienced when I was playing. So uh, I do enjoy watching the, the games late in the season when it comes down to playoff and, and World Series time. I, I try and tune in on those as best I can. But um, I've sort of given up watching the game the rest of the time because I, I don't have that close association with it. Uh, from personal contact with the players that I used to when I was coaching. One of the things that you and I have really never discussed was, was your trade from the Mets. And I know that was something that kind of caught you off guard and, and uh, you ended up being traded to the Texas Rangers. And I think that was, you know, 
the Mets certainly were, were, were making some strange trades. And I know that a lot of the players were, were talking to ownership at the time about trying to improve the, the team. And I guess that ownership didn't appreciate that. And, and uh, since a lot of players packing, unfortunately, you were one of them. What, what can you tell me about that time with the Mets or, or that your time when your time ended with the Mets? Well, in retrospect, when I look back at it, they, there were times when I was asked, you know, did I want to be traded? And my answer was always no, I didn't want to be traded. I wanted to see uh, a little offense put with the pitching and defense that we already had, and, and hopefully that would construct a, a winning effort. Um, and somewhere along the line, I think somebody construed that to mean that I didn't necessarily want to be there anymore. Um, but I I guess more than anything, it was the kiss of death to have bought a house and completed um, three projects, uh, three years of projects. Uh, the day that I was putting the paintbrushes away from painting the screened-in porch, which was the last project we put on the house, that night was the night I got the call by Joe McDonald saying, I've got good news and bad news. Good news is we've got Willie Martinez in the trade. I said, oh, that's great. And he said, well, the bad news is we gave you up to get him. And then he proceeded to tell me about the rest of the trade. Um, and it was a shock. And I think if you had asked me to name one player on the Texas Ranger team at that point in time that night, I probably couldn't have done it uh, because I was so entrenched and involved with what I was doing with the Mets and, and in the National League. You know, the, the Mets, you know, in that, you, you, they won in 1969 before you got there. Of course, 72 was your rookie year. So by the time you got there, uh, guys like Seaver and Kuzman were already well-established and, and, and what a great rotation to play in. Um, are you, in retrospect, uh, obviously 73, you guys got as close as you could getting to Game 7 of the World Series. But in retrospect, are you disappointed or how, in the fact that those Mets teams didn't win more? Or how do you look back most at your time at the Mets? Um, there's no disappointment there except from possible extent that, that, you know, we were known for pitching and defense. And, uh, if we could have figured out a way to come up with a little more offense, um, who knows? It it may have changed a whole bunch of things. It it just wasn't the way things happen. So, you know, when you're buried in the, the day-to-day grind of, of trying to do whatever it is you have to do to get ready for the next game, to help your team be in a position to win. Um, you're not worried about where the offense is coming from. You're worried about not giving up anything from the other side. Grody gave me great advice. And actually, the first game I pitched there in Cincinnati, um, before I threw the first pitch, he came trotting out to the mound with his mask on top of his helmet and asked me if I was scared, and I said, hell no, I'm shaking in my boots. And he said, well, don't worry about a thing. I'm going to take good care of you today. Uh, Don't give them a run, and I guarantee you a tie. Turn around and went back to home plate. And that was sort of advice that I stuck by. If I didn't give up anything, it was going to be hard to lose. One of the things that uh, the Mets did right uh, recently was uh, announcing that you would be – inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame. And that was supposed to happen uh, last summer. And unfortunately, last summer, really, well, last summer almost didn't happen uh, the way anybody, any of us thought it would. But uh, that got put off. Uh, hopefully that'll happen this summer or in the very near future. Can you talk a little bit about that and what it felt like to, to get the call and what it feels like to, to, or what it will feel like to be inducted into the Mets Hall of Fame? 
It's 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 a dynamite honor. There's no doubt about it, and I'm very thrilled with it. Um, I was actually driving in my car, running some errands, and I got a call uh, on the you know the speaker in the car. And the young lady said, uh, "John Matlack," and I said, "Yes." She said, hold for Fred Wilpon. <laughs> I drove off the road. I did not expect to get a call from the owner of the ball club, uh, to say the least. And he proceeded to tell me that they'd had a vote and that I was going to be inducted into the Hall of Fame and congratulated me. And it was really a, a, a shocking but time that I, I was elated. Uh, still am. And looking forward to uh, being able to ultimately go through the Ceremony, celebration, whatever they have planned, whenever they can get it scheduled, and, and hopefully we'll have this virus behind us at that time. Well, absolutely, and uh, you know the, the the honor is long overdue because, like I said, you were uh, just an absolutely outstanding, um, outstanding pitcher and player and representative for the team, and, and you're a true gentleman of the game, and, and I thank you, as always, for joining me on BT Talks Baseball. John, uh, I wish you well. I wish you a happy and, more importantly, a healthy new year, and I look forward to talking to you soon. My pleasure, Brett. Take care now. Take care. That was John Matlack. Such a great guy, such a great baseball man, and, and the stories about Tom Seaver, uh, I, I mean, I love them. I could have talked to John Matlack all night about uh, baseball and certainly about Tom Seaver. So uh, I'm so, always so thankful that he will join me here on BT Talks Baseball. I've got, had the chance to interview him for all of my books, or most of my books, I should say, the Met books, uh, and my new book, which is Mount Rushmore of the New York Mets. I'm not going to give anything away today. Well, I guess I guess I am. Uh, John, uh, you know, I do the Mount Rushmore by decades in that book, and, and John is front and center uh, on the Mount Rushmore for the 1970s for the New York Mets. Okay, we have a lot to get to on the show, but right now we are going to take a 60-second commercial and hear from our presenting sponsor, 915 Construction and Design, home to Handyman Express. 915 Construction and Design and Handyman Express have been serving Long Islanders for decades and are dedicated to providing customers with the highest quality work and overall customer service. From planning your job to making the final touch-ups, you'll experience the gold standard of home repairs and renovations. No matter how big or small your project may be, their talented and experienced contractors and handymen are prepared to take on the job. Whether you need to have them hang a picture frame, fix a faucet, or completely renovate your bathroom or kitchen, by calling 915 Construction and Design and Handyman Express, you can trust that your home or business is in good hands. Reach out today at 915cd.com or call 516-924-2400. 915-Construction and Design, home to Handyman Express. Proud presenting sponsors of BT Talks Baseball. All right, we are back. Welcome back to BT Talks Baseball. 915 Construction and Design, such a great company. And, and John Keffis and Jamie Ucolano, uh, thank you so much for, again, for, for being my presenting sponsor. Uh, they are the premier, premier company when it comes to home renovation and design uh, on the North Shore of Long Island. All right, we are going to move to a segment of the show that I'm going to call BT's Bookshelf. So... You know, those of you who know me know that I've written five books about baseball, uh, four of them about the Mets. Uh, the first one was about the Philadelphia Athletics, so I'm, I'm not t- only a one-trick pony. <laughs> I did write about something other than the Mets at one point in my career, but uh, they keep asking me to write Mets books, so I keep writing Mets books. 
my new Mets book is going to be, as I mentioned just uh, before when I was finishing with John Matlack, Mount Rushmore of the New York Mets by Decade. Um, and that's going to be coming out in March. I'm excited about that. And my last Mets book uh, called Miracle Moments in New York Mets History is going to be re-released in May with some new chapters uh, and some new surprises and uh, a little bit about Jacob deGrom, a little bit about Pete Alonso. So stay tuned for that. But the reason that I mention any of that is because if you're going to be a writer or an author, I should say, of, of books, uh, especially books about baseball, uh, you really have to appreciate all of the other authors out there. And, you know, there's so many great baseball books out there. And every week, my goal is going to be to, to talk to one of those authors, to talk about their book, about their influences, and to, to let, make you aware of some of the great baseball books that are out there. BT's Bookshelf is going to be brought to you every week by SiteMD. SiteMD is proud to be the official LASIK provider of the New York Mets. Their advanced LASIK technology is helping professional athletes and patients discover the world of clear vision beyond their glasses and contacts. Interested in LASIK? Find out more at www.sitemd.com slash LASIK. All right. Today, for the very first BT's Bookshelf, I'm really honored to have John Shea with me. John is the San Francisco Chronicle's national baseball writer and columnist. He's been covering baseball for four decades, including 33 years in the Bay Area. He's written four baseball books, including the one we're going to talk about tonight, 24 Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid, which of course was an immediate New York Times bestseller. It's about Willie Mays and, you know, Willie Mays was my dad's guy and there is nobody, you know, as soon as this book came out, I, the first thing I did was get it for my dad for Father's Day. It's a great read and he's going to join me tonight. John Shea, Happy New Year and welcome to BT Talks Baseball. Well, thank you very much and congratulations on the launch. Thank you so much, John, and congratulations on 24. Such a great book, and I know you've written other books in the past, including books about Ricky Henderson, but, you know, to be able to write about somebody like Willie Mays, who is not even arguably now, he's just the greatest living ball player, is so incredible. I know you and Willie have known each other for a long time, but what made you both to decide to write this book now? Well, it's been many years in the planning stages. Maybe 2005 is when I first approached him, and he said he'd like to see a book in classrooms. So we went the inspirational slant, and from there we got not just life stories from the Say Hey Kid, but life lessons from the Say Hey Kid. So it's maybe multidimensional, 24 chapters, uh, his life, um, his personality, his his charm, his uh, flair, I think they're all kind of exhibited in different ways. And I interviewed maybe 200 plus people to weigh in on uh, the storytelling to complement what Willie is saying and, and brought those stories back to Willie. And then he opened up a little deeper and it, it was, it was quite a project, a project of a lifetime. And uh, I, w Willie's happy with it. And so I'm happy with it. You know, John, your approach in this book is very interesting because obviously so much has been written about Willie over the years, but I know that you both really wanted this to be a, a book for multiple generations. And we've all seen, see, we've all seen the footage of, of Willie Mays playing stickball in the streets with the kids in the 1950s. And now, oh, what, 70 years later, he still wants to reach baseball's young fans with his story. And, and you do a remarkable job of, of doing that. And so can you talk a little bit about the fact that, that Willie has always been about kids and always been about family and how that influenced telling his story? 
No, well, thank you. I mean, yeah, the nickname, the Say Hey Kid and aptly named, um, just a, basically a year out of high school, this kid is the center fielder for the New York Giants at the Polo Grounds, and it didn't take long. I mean, he went from the Negro Leagues to two minor league teams uh, belonging to the Giants, and that was a step below. Uh, that was a step down for him because the competition wasn't what it was in the Negro Leagues. And he was hitting uh, – 477 uh, for AAA Minneapolis when he finally got called up in late May of 1951 and he helped, you know, this veteran squad of legendary players uh, overtake uh, this legendary squad of, uh, of Dodgers, you know, in the 51 and Bobby Thompson's home run and Willie Mays was on deck. But, you know, he always just loved the game and loved and just had in, in extreme passion for the game and that with, with his five tools and the sixth tool of outsmarting everybody uh, just set him apart because he was just so fun to watch. Uh, he wouldn't get booed at Ebbets field or Dodger stadium. Um, it seemed everyone came from all the boroughs to, to watch him and because he always put on a different display. It wasn't just, uh, you know, watching a guy who's a great hitter. I, I don't go up and get a beer during this at bat. Well, with Mays, you wouldn't get a beer at any point because defensively you never knew what was going to happen. And sometimes, like he said in the book, he made the tough plays look easy and the easy plays look hard. And it was to entertain people. And, you know, that exuberance and, and uh, joy for the game is really part of this, this book. And, and I think it comes across because all the interviews I did with other people, they tell similar stories about how, you know, Willie, um, you know, treated them or, or uh, told them a funny story or whatever it was, different anecdotes in Willie's life and career. So it, it's, uh, it, it's kind of all encompassing that way. And, um, you know, I think, I think it, it comes across because, you know, w Willie's still a kid. I mean, he loves the game. You go to his house, you know, he, he, he baseball, baseball, and he goes to the clubhouse. And, you know, when this virus hit us, he had to stop doing that. But, even in spring training of 2020, I saw him every single day in the home clubhouse at Scottsdale Stadium. So he still loves the game, still has passion for the game, still loves being around these players. You mentioned how smart a player he was, and I think that's something that people don't really realize. I mean, they, they knew he could hit, they knew he could run, they certainly knew he could field, and they know all of his highlights, and they can almost picture his highlights. Um, but I don't think everybody realizes just how smart a player Willie Mays was. Yeah, I mean, he... he <laughs> He would uh, – I talked to different shortstops who played with him, different teammates who played with him. You know, usually maybe the shortstop is the infield captain and, and the center fielder is the outfield captain. Well, everybody to a man would say, you know, Willie was our captain. I mean, literally he was the first African-American in the history uh, – captain in the history of, of game uh, – the game uh, Alvin Dark named him uh, so in the early 60s. And he took that seriously. Uh, some players went as far as saying he was our manager because he told the manager what to do with the lineup. He told the manager how to how to play guys. And, you know, you talk about today's uh, advanced metrics and uh, the superior data we have now compared to then. Well, Willie used a lot of that uh, internally. I mean, he re remembered every at-bat, remembered every episode against an opponent, knew how guys threw, and would sneak out to the dugout before games just to see how – somebody's throwing in the bullpen, whether the curve is breaking, whether the fastball has some zip, whether he has any control. And he used that in the game and wasn't afraid to help uh, teammates um, 
along the way because that's that's all part of you know the sixth tool. It's it's like the psychological advantage. Now everybody you know has has uh, you know a shrink. You know, and, and Willie was his own shrink. Uh, that wasn't really allowed back then. But it, it, it's amazing uh, how he envisioned and how he imagined and and and, and basically saw the game uh, develop before it developed, and that gave him an extreme advantage. You know, Joe DiMaggio famously once said, and I'm paraphrasing, that you know he played hard every day because he never knew when someone was watching him for the first time. There is a good chance that many, if not most, of the, the people who are going to read this book never saw Willie Mays play at all. Did you feel a sense of responsibility telling his story to younger fans who, who may not have known even who Willie Mays was? Yeah, that's exactly true. That's a great point. Most of the people living today were not around in his final season, 1973. Um, so I thought it was my duty uh, and honor to basically tell the stories that haven't been told. I mean, books have been written uh, during Mays' time and after his career was over, um, you know, many books. But uh, they, they, they just seem to go back to the same stories with the same quotes and the same anecdotes and told the same way. And I said, well, I'm going to try something new. I'm not using an old quote. Every single quote in this book, by Alvin Dark or Lando Cepeda or Felipe Alou or um, I, I spoke with President. Everyone had a Willie May story. I talked with Bill Clinton and and George W. Bush. I, I, you know Hank Aaron, thirty plus Hall of Famers, um, many of whom are, are no longer with us. So uh, I, I spent many years, um, you know, speaking with people about Mays. Everyone has a May story. Everyone uh, can relate to that. But um, I, I think that. Uh, uh, you know, the fact that it's it, it's come out now is is relevant um, with the civil unrest in the country in so many ways, the, the issues with racism. And he was really a peacekeeper. He was a uniter. You know, when when Johnny Roseboro and Juan Marichal went at it at Candlestick Park in the early 60s, uh, Marichal uh, hitting him on the head with the bat. It was Mays who dragged, you know, the, the, the opponent, uh, Roseboro, off the field and in a, in a sea of Dodger blue um, and nobody objected. He was the guy to do that. You know, he was the great uniter of the races and um, you, you know, it, 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 the, the way that Reggie Jackson and Maury Wills and Hank Aaron and uh, Frank Robinson and, and all these great players who kind of came after Willie, um, they all had great stories about how he made a difference in civil rights or, and, and, and he was kind of portrayed previously as someone who didn't, make a difference. But, you know, talking to Joe Morgan and all these great players, they all provided details of how he did make a difference. And, uh, and I, I thought that was real important to, to showcase because maybe the generations before and certainly the current generation was unaware of that. I'm speaking with author John Shea, who, and we're talking about his fantastic book, 24 Life Stories, Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kids, put out by St. Martin's Press. And John, when, when I write a book, I know well, the most exciting part for me is, for whatever reason, I end up going down a rabbit hole pertaining to a particular story or an aspect of a story that I might not have known about, uh, and it catches you off guard in, in, in sometimes the best of ways. Uh, were there any instances while you were writing this book that caught you off guard, something you didn't know about, but that took you in a direction that you were so proud of in the end? Yeah. When we were talking, he just kind of threw this at me one day, and you remember, he... he <laughs> 
he played in the Negro Leagues as a sophomore, junior, and senior in high school. And by his senior year, he was he was just an amazing athlete and w- was really starting to hit a lot more and could always play defense, always had a great arm, could always run. But now he's showing a little power, a little batting average. And, okay, so he's, he's the best prospect in the land. Well, he's African-American, so most of the teams don't want him. The Red Sox certainly don't want him. The Yankees didn't want him. The Dodgers made up an excuse about how he couldn't hit the curveball. The, the Braves, uh, uh, um, White Sox, they were all in on him. But only the Giants signed him and offered him the money he wanted, told him about the opportunity in New York. He said, okay, let's go. And within a year, he goes from the from from all black baseball to all white baseball because his first stop is in Trenton, um, New Jersey. And he's the only minority in the whole league. And he spends that year out of high school there. And it was tough, man. It was 1950 and three years after Jackie Robinson broke the color line. So Willie was hearing all the same things Jackie was hearing, but nobody was writing about it. It was a lower level uh, interstate B league. But uh, he overcame the racists and didn't let that uh, stop him. But at one point in the conversations, he looked at me and said, uh, I didn't know if I wanted to keep playing. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what if he quit? What if he went back to Birmingham and worked in the mines or, you know, played for the Black Barons for a few more years or just, you know. But luckily for all of us, he didn't quit. And he persevered and um maybe changed people's minds. Maybe the racist who looked in the window and said, why did I root for Willie Mays today? You know, why am I a racist? And said, maybe I should change my way of thinking if I think so highly of this Willie Mays guy. So you know, he, he changed people's minds. And Bill Clinton told me uh, Willie Mays made it absurd to be a racist. And that meant a lot. And um, there's a whole chapter on, on just that. So he, he changed people's minds. And, and there was a time where he said I was going to quit. And luckily, he never did. And now we you know, can, can read about the greatest player who ever lived. You know, you mentioned you sp- spoke to so many just really huge people in this world from, from, from within baseball and with outside of baseball, you know, presidents and, and Hall of Famers and, and is, was there one interview in particular, and maybe it was a, an interview not of you know Bill Clinton or Obama or of, of Joe Morgan? Was there any interview that kind of surprised you about that you went into thinking, okay, I'm going to speak to this person, but uh, I'm not expecting much, and then and then got just so much more than you could have ever, ever expected? Well, you know, even though we consummated the deal in 2018 the years leading up to the the finalization of the contract for the book with St. Martin's press, I I conducted interviews and uh, I spent, you know, a lot of time just in case there was a book uh, because I knew uh, not everybody would be around in 2018 when the book would reach fruition. So Alvin dark, for instance, um, you know, here's a guy who played with Willie uh, made him the first uh, African-American captain, but also was his teammate in New York. Um, and, you know, there were some issues uh, in terms of race. Uh, a lot of people didn't want to play for him. Felipe Alou, Orlando Cepeda, Marshall, all these guys, he kind of divided the clubhouse. He wouldn't let Spanish speakers speak Spanish in the clubhouse. Said, leave that out in the parking lot. Well, are you kidding me? In 2020, going back, that's just ludicrous. And that was the scene. The Giants had the most diverse clubhouse in the majors at that time. 
uh, with with African Americans, with with uh, uh, Latin ball players, and and um, they were just splendid ball players and personalities. But uh, Alvin didn't want that to come out, so he was there four years, and he guided them to the '62 World Series. But Orlando Cepeda said, "Well, he probably cost us pennants." You know, and they traded certain guys. They traded Orlando. They traded Felipe. They should have held on to these guys because they probably could have won more World Series. But or um, Elvin Dark really opened up on that, opened up on race. And and the beauty of this story is, yes, he was a racist as a manager. You could say he was a bigot as a manager. He said some things that were regrettable. But later in life, at an old-timers game, when when players from the 62 uh, Dodgers and 62 Giants got together, there was a hotel. There was uh, Alvin went around the room and apologized to all the guys. He apologized you know, to Jose Pagan and Orlando Cepeda and Felipe Alou because as Alou and Cepeda told me, he didn't want that in his heart when he died. So uh, he came around and saw the light and all that stuff, but it was unfortunate because at the time it was pretty brutal uh, for some people in their minds playing for Alvin Dark. But uh, Alvin told the whole story about that, as did all these players, and it was Mays who, in 1964, got all these players together in his hotel room because they were going to boycott. They were just going to walk out. It was going to be mutiny. They were just going to quit because they were fed up with Alvin Dark. And it was Mays late in that 64 season that said, hey, don't play for the manager. Play for us. Play for yourselves. Play for the team. And let's get by, you know, and get through this. So it was Willie Mays, the great uniter, who brought them all together, and they finished the season. Alvin was fired after the the year, but – Anyway, uh, it, it all comes back to Willie Mays and how much influence he had on others. John, one more question. Since the book has come out and, and uh, you've, you've gotten all the accolades and, and certainly everybody, uh, so many more people have, have learned about Willie's story. What have you learned uh, about Willie since the book has come out and, and what was his reaction to the book and, and, and all of the great, uh, great reviews? Well, no, thanks for asking. Um, Willie loved the book. He loved the audio book. Um, uh, you know, Bob Costas uh, wrote the forward and then he read the forward, uh, which is just, you know, gives me chills when I hear it. Um, in fact, there were two narrators on the audiobook. In fact, the one who did everything else and the one who just did Willie's voice. And the person who just did Willie's voice, Julian McWilliams, who covers the Red Sox for the Boston Globe. Um, a friend of mine who grew up in Harlem uh, and, and um, <laughs> was a big Maze fan in his 20s. And who, who's, you know, here's a kid who's 30, and he, he's a big Mays fan, says his favorite player. It's been decades since uh, Mays has played. But I asked him to audition. Uh, I said, what the heck, go for it, and just don't try to sound like him. Just, you know, capture his heart, capture his vibe. And, you know, he, he got the gig, and, you know, it's, it's Julian's voice. Uh, but, uh, you know, Willie really loves that. He loves the way uh, Julian per, uh, portrays him. And then at the end of the audiobook, uh, Willie and I do like a 15-minute Q&A where he talks about the book and, you know, explains why he wanted it done. And not just, uh, you know, for the generations who saw him, but for all those who didn't. It's not just him. It's his era of ballplayers, his era of, of Negro Leaguers, and, and on and on. So I think... Um, he was, he was happy with how it came out, and the unfortunate thing with the virus is he's sheltering at home in, in his Bay Area pad and isn't at the ballpark as he was hoping he would be because he was always there. You know, he's at Scottsdale Stadium, spring training, he was always 
at, in the clubhouse. And that's one Hall of Famer more than any other I've ever known. He and maybe Willie McCovey, just always uh, available to talk with players or coaches or managers, even the media um, in the clubhouse. So, you know, those days are gone with McCovey, but uh, Mays is still hoping to, to come back when uh, this virus leaves us. The book is 24, Life Stories and Lessons from the Say Hey Kid by St. Martin's Press. The author is John Shea. John, obviously the book is available everywhere. Is there any place that you uh, like to direct people to, to purchase a book? Well, obviously um, you, could, you could get it on Amazon very easily, but if you want to support your local independent bookstore, there's something called bookshop.org. And all you have to do is punch in your zip code and it, gets you to your local independent bookstores and you can purchase it that way. Bookshop.org um, is, is a cool way to do it uh, just to support the local guys. Well, John, I'm certainly in favor of that. And I, I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to talk with us here on BT Talks Baseball. I wish you a happy and a healthy new year and uh, all great things for the book. And please say hi to Willie for us. Okay, will do. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, uh, on launch day. Thank you, John. That's John Shea. Uh, and that was the first edition of BT's Bookshelf. Uh, and we're going to have a bunch of authors along the way uh, to tell about their books. And, and it's a part of the show that I'm really, really excited about. And I'm equally excited about uh, the third segment of our, our show and the final segment of our show, which is going to be called The Baseball Road Trip. Now, I know the baseball road trips are probably not going to be happening uh, right as the season starts. Uh, we're not even sure if the season's going to start on time, although fingers crossed that it will. Uh, but there, the fact that we is we probably will not have fans in, ball, in ballparks uh, at the beginning of the season, but hopefully by the summer, fingers crossed, that we will have stadiums with people in them this summer. So I thought it would be kind of a cool segment to have something called the Baseball Road Trip, where we talk about different cities that if you go watch the Mets play in Philadelphia or the Yankees play in Baltimore or Boston, or if you're, if you're in another city right now, I'm in New York, so I, I talk about those teams. But if you're in Baltimore and you got to go to Philadelphia or, or any, any different direction, um, if you got to go to a different city, some of the other things you can do in that city when you're not at the ball game, whether it's a great place to have breakfast or a great place to grab dinner or a site that you can't miss or a hidden gem. So uh, each week I'm going to be speaking to a travel expert about baseball travel, and it's going to be called Baseball Road Trip. And before we get to our guest, uh, the Baseball Road Trip is brought to you by Wanderology, your one-stop luxury tra travel agency that handles everything for you so you can relax knowing you've left your vacation planning to the experts. Wanderology's mission is very simple, to help you plan a trip that you'll never forget and to make it easier than ever. Every journey starts with a conversation, so reach out to Rebecca at Wanderology today at wanderology.com or at 516-636-TRIP. That's 516-636-TRIP. Be sure to mention you heard about Wanderology on BT Talks Baseball. Hopefully, Rebecca will be able to be nice and give you a special booking discount. Wanderology, life is short, the world is wide. All right, it's time for the baseball road trip, and I'm, I'm so excited that each week I'm going to be joined by Glenn Hausman. 
Glenn is an extremely well-respected leader in the travel industry. He's a podcaster. He's a host of a show. No vacancy. Uh, it's wildly popular. If you have, if you're into travel, or you do any travel, or you're going to do any travel once this pandemic ends, you're going to want to hear the No Vacancy podcast. He gives you all of the tips. Uh, to keep you aware of everything, no matter where you're going. And he's now the host of the weekly baseball road trip right here on BT Talks Baseball. More importantly than any of that, he's been a friend of mine for more than, wait for it, 40 years. How scary is that, Glenn? I want to welcome Glenn Hausman to BT Talks Baseball. Dude, how dare you? 40 years? I can't believe it. I know. I gave away your age. I think they, 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 you've been telling everybody you've been in your early to mid-30s. I think I just ruined that. I wish I was in my mid thirties, but I tell you, Brett, I miss the road trip more than anything. I'm a guy that's been on the road uh, typically in a normal year, 125 nights plus. This year, hardly any. I can't wait till you and me get back to the road and get to do fun stuff. And let me tell you, Brett, I have Dr. Osterholm on my show. He's on Biden's task force on uh, on, on the COVID vaccines, and he said that he expects to be at a baseball game with his grandson this July in person. So I think we're going on a road trip this summer, buddy. Well, that's great to hear. And listen, I will be very happy to go on the first road trip with you and sit next to you in the stadium um, because I will just be happy to be back in the stadium. Uh, I'll be happy to just to leave the state of New York, to be honest with you. But, you know, what we're going to do, you know, these first several shows in the first several weeks, uh, Glenn, is just talk about different cities and, and, and places that when it's okay to travel again, you know, you might want to take a short drive or even a short flight eventually uh, and, and check out some of these great cities. Before we get to baseball, though, what are you, are you feeling that, you know, you mentioned the doctor mentioned that uh, by July we should be getting sitting in baseball stadiums. When are you expecting uh, an uptick of travel, uh, at least in some small way? I think that next summer we're going to start to see an uptick in travel, in particular the leisure travel that we all know and love. I think convention business is in big trouble. Business travel is going to take a long term to recuperate, but when it comes to me, you, and the entire listening audience getting to go on the road, I think we're going to be doing that, and we're going to be doing it in record numbers because people are dying to get back out on the road and travel. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. And so let's let's get to this baseball road trip. And our first road trip tonight uh, on week one of BT Talks Baseball is we're going to take a road trip uh, just down the turnpike to uh, Philadelphia, such a great city. And I think people don't realize, for those of people who have not been to Philadelphia, they don't realize what a great city it is. Culture, food, everything that's going on in Philly is is fun. And let's just say a Mets or a Yankees or an Orioles or any fan decides to take a, a trip to Philadelphia, Glenn. Let's talk a little bit about what they have to make sure they hit when they get to Philly when they're not at Citizen Bank Ballpark. Well, you know, of course, when uh, one of the things that I want to talk about most of all is eating. That's really important. We'll talk about that in a second. But, you know, Brett, if you're going to Philadelphia and you're a sports fan, you have no choice, I believe it's required by law, that you have to go over to the, uh, the Philadelphia Museum of Art, run up those steps, and pose with the Rocky statue over there. You know, that's the most important thing you got to do. Absolutely. And you got to do that iconic jump with your fists in the air, right? Uh, that's right. Although I'm getting to the, the age now where I might have to do uh, an iconic jump in the air with my walker. At this point, who knows? All right. <laughs> right? So, but then, after that, but, you know, um, I think, you you know, instead of going to all the regular sites and stuff like that, I think it'd be a, a whole lot of fun to take a take a ride over to the, the Muter Museum, which is at the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. 
Now, this is a crazy place to visit, Brett, because they got like a, a piece of uh, Einstein's brain over there. They've got a they've got a plaster cast of the original Siamese twins, Chang and Ang, and all sorts of really bizarre things that I think people would like. They got tons of skeletons over there, all sorts of models of human bodies, and oh, 5,500 different types of medical instruments throughout history. What a crazy place to go. Wow, that sounds like it's a lot of fun and definitely sounds like something you could hit uh, during if you take a weekend trip and you, you have a game on a Saturday night or a Sunday afternoon, you could definitely make time to hit that. And, you know, one of the places uh, in Philadelphia that is one of my all-time favorite places, and uh, I know we're going to talk about food in, in some detail, but, uh, you know, the Terminal Market is some place that I just, it's one of my favorite places. And it's a very, very dangerous place to go, Glenn. Uh, yeah, did you say the Reading Terminal? But because, you know, that is a great place to go if you want to get yourself a, a great breakfast over there. they got this awesome place called Dutch Eating Place where you can really get a taste of the Pennsylvania Dutch foods. They've got popular uh, breakfast stuff such as, uh, you know, eggs the way you want them and blueberry studded pancakes, apple cinnamon French toast, all sorts of just yummy, yummy things. There's this great bakery over there called Byler's Bakery, which is absolutely fantastic. And the cool thing is if you go over to Reading Terminal, Brett, you know, if you and your buddies don't want to have exactly the same thing, you could all scatter, get your meal of choice, and then come back and all kind of hang out together before going to the big game. Yeah, I, I've actually gotten lost a couple of times in, ter- in that market and uh, in the terminal. And, and when I say I've gotten lost, it's just, you know, it's just uh, eating upon eating upon eating because there's so, there's so much, whether you stop at the... I have to tell you, there was a boneless baby back rib sandwich at one of the Amish. Now, listen, I don't know how the Amish uh, people cooked the boneless ribs without electricity, but they have a way to do it, and it's phenomenal. Uh, yeah, oh, my God. That sounds absolutely fantastic. But, Brett, you know, if we're talking Philadelphia, we have to talk about the quintessential cheesesteak sandwich. And I know everybody talks about Geno's or Pat. They're fine. But because my wife comes from Philadelphia and she grew up there and her and her friends, they say the place to get the best uh, cheesesteak in the city is Jim South Street. You can find them at jimsouthstreet.com. They've been there since 1976 and they've been a five-time winner of the Best of Philly Award for the best steak sandwich in the town. They've got a staff that's got over 200 years of cheesesteak making experience over there. You've got to check them out. Glenn, let's talk about the cheesesteak for for a minute because you know people <laughs> when people think of Philadelphia, they think of the cheesesteak. Um, I think you gave me a little insight. Uh, we were talking uh, off air, and you have another spot for one of your favorite cheesesteaks. Do you want to tell that story? I do. I do. Yeah, yeah, this is a it's kind of a crazy story. Uh, it's got a little weird, but about sixteen and a half years ago, my wife had uh, emergency surgery because she had an infection and she was pregnant. Had to pull my kids out. They were preemies. They got stuck in and in the NICU for like eight weeks. And during that time, I survived on Ben Franklin Hospital cheesesteak sandwiches. Back then, they were only like a buck and a quarter. They're the best thing that you could absolutely imagine. And of course, if you're going to order, you got to order it the right way. So if you go to Philly, you got to have it with or without fried onions. You got to tell them what you want, the with or the without. And then you can get it with the cheese whiz, the American or the provolone cheese. So be sure you get it with the cheese whiz, the ultimate way to get it eaten. In the hospital commissary. Yeah, absolutely. What, what, what else? Can, what else? Can, some serious eats yeah. There. Well, listen. I mean, there have been times where I've I've wanted to uh, 
you know, throw myself uh, in front of a car for a good meal. So perhaps, you know, that's, that's something I could think about doing in Philadelphia. Yeah, absolutely. And don't forget, if we're talking great Philadelphia food, you got to go and get some of their famous pretzels to bring home with you as well. Although I've been fighting with my wife now for a good 20 years over this. They like them served cold. I don't understand that. That's a weird Philly cultural thing. I like my New York pretzels when they're, uh, they're cooked over the coals on the streetcars. Hey, listen, anything else about Philadelphia you want to share with us before I let you go? Because between letting us people know that you're walking with a walker up the Rocky Steps and the best cheesesteak is in the hospital, um, I just want to make sure I still have listeners. So anything else you want to share? You got, you got a dinner spot for us? Uh, yeah, make sure you go check out that Mutter Museum. It's really, it's, it's actually pretty cool stuff. There's a lot of great museums in that general district that you could go check out. Also, because we're in a COVID world, if you want to stay outside, go check out the, uh, the Arboretums out there. They've got great parks in Philadelphia. That Rocky, that Rocky statue in the Philadelphia Museum of Art is right on a river with a great park along the river. You can go for an amazing hike and just really enjoy your outdoor time before heading over to the ballpark to have uh, a couple of beers with your buddies. Well, Glenn, listen, this was a lot of fun. And what I know is this is just the beginning of the baseball road trip because we have, oh, 50 or so to do this year. So you better, uh, you know, there's, there's not that many teams in baseball. So we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to improvise a little bit. And I know improvising is certainly one of your strong points. But listen, buddy, I can't thank you enough for, for doing this and for being a part of BT Talks Baseball. Thank you. And be sure to check out Wanderology. Rebecca planned a trip I took with my family to Israel, and it was the most incredible experience, all because of her planning. So thanks a lot for having me, Brett. Absolutely, Glenn. Thank you. And uh, yes, Wanderology sponsors the baseball road trip, and uh, obviously it sponsors Glenn's personal vacations as well. So that's, uh, that's a perfect scenario. So, wow. The first show, I can't believe 58 minutes has almost gone by already. And I have 45 seconds to go. Mike Capice is saying that he's, he's still, he wants to get on camera, but the, camera, the, <laughs> the video feed it didn't even work out. So, so don't even worry about that, Mike. But I want to thank everybody for joining me. I want to thank everybody uh, for the support leading up to this show. And uh, I can't wait for the second show. Johnny Damon will be my guest next week. And until then, I'd like to leave you with the words of the immortal Tug McGraw, you got to believe. With your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Prince Associates for all your insurance needs. 